I got to uh, go to my first Young Life camp last summer uh, up at Woodleaf. Um, I, uh, for four years, I've been coaching football at Placer, and um, my, you know, as a as a non-teacher, um, I can uh, I can encourage kids to go to Young Life uh, without getting in too much trouble. And uh, the more of the relationship you have with them, and it's pretty neat to hear the kids on Mondays. Uh, say, hey, are you going to Young Life tonight? Hey, you going to Young Life tonight? And that's pretty cool when you think about the fact that uh, most of them are not believers, but yet they're talking about, hey, are you, are you going to Young Life tonight? And that's been pretty amazing. Uh, this year, I kind of uh, stepped into a uh, a matrix world where I began coaching baseball at Colfax High School. And if you don't think there's conflict between Plaster and Colfax, you ought to coach one sport at one and another sport at the other. I have had some lovely one-on-one discussions with some people that I've had to repent as I walked away. Um, so, but my, uh, my goal is, uh, you know, I've spent time coaching high school and college football, and, and I love to coach. I love what I do as a, as a pastor, uh, but the opportunity to be an influence and to hope, open door for a young person to, to get to know Jesus, to me, that, that's worth whatever... Uh, the investment is, and uh, to see that, and and you know, I mean, I, I have fallen in love with the kids that I've met at Colfax, and my heart, and I've talked to Joey and and Joey, uh, Placer Joey, and Young Life Joey uh, about you know what we we've got to figure out a way to get Young Life at Colfax campus where they have their own club, and and they all know that they they're way ahead of me, but um, that's the reason that we are so passionate about seeing Young Life succeed is because. We want to open doors for, for kids to know Jesus. And uh, as a church, we can do that. And, you know, it, it, you're going to buy lunch or you're going to eat dinner somewhere. And uh, it, it's great. We, uh, we had quite a few people participate last year. And let's multiply that. And uh, let's, let's get these kids to camp uh, where they are going to encounter Jesus. I'll, I will assure you of that. So there's my little spiel uh, about that. Um, we are putting a, a bow on the book of John this morning. Now, um, this is like a complicated day. And, and for those of you that have been around Gold Country for a, a while since we started eight years ago, um, I, you know my heart about this. Uh, if you came today thinking, man, we're going to hear a Mother's Day sermon. I do not do Hallmark Sundays. And, and I know that's disappointing to some of you, but I, I'm going to share the reason of that. Uh, years ago when I was at Homewood, um, you know, the there was kind of this mandate, and I told the, the leaders there, I said, I'm going to do one Hallmark Sunday, and you will never, ever want me to do it again. And they kind of looked at me kind of odd, and they go, okay, well, just do it. And so I got up there and talked about the people sitting in the, in the sanctuary that couldn't have children, who had had a bad experience as a child or with a mother, or didn't know who their mother was, or who had lost their mother. And I talked about how when we promote those things, we help inflict pain in people and we make church not safe. And that is not my intent to ever make church not safe. This ought to be the safest place ever. Uh, and, and I realize that there are probably people going, what, what, wait a minute, no, this is Mother's Day. You're supposed to give me a flower. And then we give the guys a screwdriver. <laughs> like they need something, you know, for, for Father's Day. And I mean, I get that, but what I also get is, is that Mother's Day for some is the greatest day ever. I mean, I have a great mother. I mean, and she's still with us and she is amazing. But I'm, 
I'm around people every week that that's not their, that's not their deal. And, I, you know, I work with the, the mothers of Acres of Hope, and I love what God is doing through Acres of Hope, uh, restoring motherhood and restoring daughterhood. And, and, you know, but let's fully be aware. Let's fully be aware that sometimes the day that we put at the top of our calendar isn't the easiest day for everyone. And, and I realize that there's always going to be that good, bad, ugly thing. But I, I, I think I've said enough. I'll leave it at that. John chapter 21. Pick up with me in verse 18. Very truly, I tell you, <clears throat> when you were younger, and he's talking to Peter. Peter, you know, had, had denied Jesus. Jesus has appeared to the disciples a few times, and he catches them out by the lake. They're out fishing. They hadn't caught anything. They have this miraculous catch of fish we talked about last week. Peter jumps in the water. He's going to make sure that Jesus sees that he's getting to the shore first, and he's trying to still work his way back into Jesus. And Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, talking to Peter, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? What are you going to do with that guy? What's his life going to look like? I mean, is he going to die by not being able to do anything but stretch out his hands? I mean, are you being unfair to me? Are you giving him more? Do you like him more than you like me? Jesus answered, and you can read into this a bit of a rebuke. If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If, if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. It's kind of interesting, uh, verse 24, the, that there are some of John's disciples that have kind of added on to this narrative, which kind of created a little bit of controversy because some people say, well, John obviously is dead. But if John truly wrote the book of Revelation and he wrote first and second and third John, then we've got John living to be an old, old man. And so it created this, this controversy that that Jesus was going to keep John alive until he returned again. And so we, we're always looking for a conspiracy. And there's not one, but we're always looking for it. And some of you are Area 51 people. And you're always looking for a controversy, and a, but there's not one. But Jesus has some pretty direct words for Peter. And I just want to take a few minutes this morning, and I want to walk through them and see what it has for us. Now. Jesus is telling Peter that one day, even though you've denied me, even though you told me you were going to die with me, even though you said, hey, I'm in, I'm in. You're not really in. Look at the way that it's played out in John 13. Let's just remind ourselves of this. I think I put that in there. I could have forgotten. Did I put it in there? Oh, yeah, thank you. 
Simon Peter asked him, this is when they're in the upper room, Lord, Lord, where are you going? Because Jesus said, where I'm going, you can't go. Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but notice what he says, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then the next, Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So when Peter does his own thing in his own strength, in his own way, it never works out real well. It kind of goes south quickly. And we, we have to read John 21 in the context of John 13, because that's what Jesus is referencing. That's what Jesus is bringing him back from. It's not just he denied him in the courtyard while Jesus was on trial. It's this boastful claim that I'm the only one that's really in. I'm the only one that's really going to follow you. All these other losers, they're going to fall away. They're going to do that, but I'm in, which is pretty arrogant to say the least. Now, one day Jesus says, you're going to have the courage to follow me, to really even die for me. And some of us are like, man, that's bad news. But it's really good news because he's telling Peter that there's going to come a day where you're going to make good on that promise to not deny me. Even when people stretched out his hands and nailed him to a cross, Peter would not deny him. <clears throat> but in the metaphor for dying on a cross, Jesus uses an odd image. He, he says that you're going to stretch out your hands, which is what they did to Jesus. They stretched out his hands. But he says, I'm going to compare that to when you're a little child, you would stretch out your hands and you would look at your parents and you would say, hold me. Hold me. Any of you, you know those days? Hold me. And if Peter is going to have the faith to endure not only the persecution, not only the brutality, but the murder that he's going to suffer through, he's going to have to be able to look in the spirit realm and he's going to have to be able to see that God has a hold of him. Because by the fire, he doesn't believe Jesus has a hold of him. He believes he's all alone and fear consumes him. And can we just say that, that fear consumes us? Can we just say that anxiety overwhelms us? Can we just say that sometimes we're like, I know where this is going to go, and I just want to keep my mouth shut because if I mention Jesus' name, I'm going to have to have this argument and this controversy between Placer and Colfax people that I don't really want to have. <clears throat> it's really, Jesus says, Peter, when you were little, oh, you would just, you just put your arms out and people picked you up and people dressed you and they carried you around to wherever you needed to be. Listen, there's going to come a day when you're going to spread your hands out towards me and you're going to have childlike dependency. <clears throat> you're going to have intimacy and you're going to have trust in me alone, not in you. And that posture towards me is what will give you the strength to die like I died. 
See, Peter, we talked about this last week, he thought his strength came from being a man who proved himself to be better than others. Jesus told him his strength would come from relating to him the way a child relates to a loving parent. If you will remember, on the Eastern narrative, John records for us that there was a race to the tomb, and Peter did not win. John did. And there's this kind of theme in Peter that he needs to prove himself. He needs to show that he's a little bit better than everyone else so he can gain value. Jesus told him his strength would come from relating to him the way a child relates to a loving parent. Don't miss this. How did Jesus turn Peter, a guy who was so shaky that he'd deny him three times in one evening to one who would actually endure his own crucifixion through an experience of grace? It's the same way that God transforms our heart, only through an experience of grace. You can't guilt, shame, berate anyone into life transformation You can only love them and give them the thing that they never expected, nor did they earn, grace. And that's what Jesus is going to do for Peter. When Peter sees all his failures, he's now going to look and see that his failures actually brought him closer to Jesus than his successes ever could have because our successes breed pride. I mean, it's offensive when someone says, hey, you can't save yourself. What do you mean I can't save myself? I'm smart. I'm good. I'm mostly good. I'm better than you anyway. And that's conflicting to us, because who wants to raise their hand and say, I'm not good enough to save myself? And yet, It's that beginning of humility when we make that acknowledgement that actually ushers in the grace. It's not that the grace is not already there. It's that our pride refuses to receive it. Well, I don't necessarily need it. I might need like 2%. Which, by the way, is arrogant beyond arrogant. When Peter stretched out his hands in his own strength, saying, look how mighty I am, he denied Christ. But when he stretched out his hands in intimacy to Jesus, like a child stretches out towards a parent, he would have the strength even to endure crucifixion. Peter's pride and his self-confidence in his own abilities kept him in really four spiritually dead conditions. I prayed these over us last week as as things we need to to rid ourselves of. You see, it, it made Peter unsure of his relationship to God. Because he had failed, because he had denied Jesus, because of all the things that he had promised Jesus that he was going to do and he couldn't do and he didn't do, it made him unsure because how is Jesus going to look at me? How is he going to see me? Is he going to see me as the guy who three times cussed to a teenage girl? I don't know you. Or is he going to see me as broken and in need of grace, the recipient of grace? What? What's going to be? Because he's always going to ask himself, have I done enough? 
And I don't know about you, but when someone tells me that their whole religious system is, is, boy, I hope I've done enough. Oh, it's what makes me despise legalism. Because people never settle in that the grace of God is the only way. It's the only way. It also left him spiritually weak because his own sense of strength kept him from depending on Jesus. His own sense of strength kept him from depending on Jesus. I've already covered that. It also kept Peter's self-focus. You see, he's constantly asking himself, how well am I doing? Am I measuring up? Am I better than this guy? We, uh, we have a saying in our culture, keeping up with the, curse those dang Joneses. But it's not just what kind of house we live in and what kind of clothes and what kind of car. It's how successful am I at being good? What's, do you want to go about the business of defining good, better, and best? Peter can't pay attention to other people's needs because he's so consumed with his need to win. And then probably the fourth thing I would say is that he's unable to help anybody else in their own weakness because we can't help others if we're consumed with our own strength. We might inspire them with how perfect and strong and capable we present ourselves as, but what's What's really going to happen is that we're going to crush them because they're going to try to be perfect like they assume that we are perfect. But intuitively, they know we're not perfect, but we put off this false front, this kind of arrogant, and they're like, ooh, they kind of got it together. And then they're going to realize one day, ooh, they don't have it together. And it's going to just end up wreaking havoc. Because see, what they need most and what you and I need most is to see how God's grace actually works in our life. Because that shows them where they can find God's grace. Because they don't need our strength. What they need is God's grace working in our weakness to promote the one that actually is the healer. People's greatest need is not a teacher, a role model, or a perfect earthly father or mother. What we all need what they need is a Savior. And our story of how God showed us grace can get them to where they need to be. Because it shows them where they can find the fountain of grace for their own weakness. And people are more apt to reveal their weakness when we're not consumed with covering up ours. A deep experience with God's grace could reverse all four of those things. It would give Peter an assurance with God. He, he would feel safe because it's not about have, he, has, have I done enough? Do I measure up or am I better than? It would be I'm held together by the one thing that will never fail. It would also give him an intimacy with Jesus that would make him want to draw close to God. Because here's the deal. You know this to be true. You can tell when your kid has done something wrong, can you not? They don't want to be around you. Now, not that they probably don't want to be around us anyway, but if they think, oh my gosh, they know what I've done, and my dad always knew what I'd done, 
that's kind of a weird thing. I, I think I've kind of figured that out now. I mean, he just knew everybody in the county. And I think people would call and go, hey, you know what your son's doing? But, you know, you, you can look and go, but when you have intimacy with Jesus, it's not that you, your, your internal mechanisms, the, the enemy is going to lie to you. God doesn't love you anymore. He can't love you. You keep screwing up. You're, you're never going to be good enough. And he's going to constantly keep going back to that. And yet, when you have intimacy with Jesus, you realize it's not have you been good. It's that he's good. It's not that you've been perfect. It's that he's perfect. It's not that you are ever going to do it all right. It's that he did it right. And he covered and paid for you what you couldn't and know what I couldn't do for ourselves. And so we don't live in our own confidence. We live in the confidence that he has given us because of his grace. And that intimacy will fill Peter and us with spiritual strength. You see, Peter's going to constantly stretch out his hands to Jesus like a child stretches out to their parents. And that stretching for Jesus was so strong that it could endure the pain of the crucifixion. And that's what Jesus did. He committed himself to his Father because he knew that his Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would raise him from the dead, that he wouldn't be abandoned. And we, we are like that trusting child with Jesus. We can stretch out our hands to him and say, okay, Jesus, you can take all that I have because in you, I have all that I need. And Peter's failure and experience of grace is going to help take Peter's eyes off himself. You know this to be true, though it's hard. The most miserable times in our life are when we are self-focused. Because selfishness breeds a contempt towards God and everybody else because we want what we want, when we want it, how we want it, and where we want it. And if you don't give it to me, I will make your life miserable until you do. And that kind of selfishness breeds an arrogance and a system around us that people begin running from us because it's hard to love a porcupine. And when we turn selfish, we become porcupines. When Peter's not always trying to prove himself, he's going to be able to be aware of other people's needs, and that's going to give him an ability to help others by showing them how to access the same grace that he had accessed. Jesus chose Peter to be a leader in the church, not despite his failures, but because of his failures. Because when we learn from our failures and we lean into grace, that's what qualifies people to lead. Not because we're smart, but because we're all that. It's that we figured it out. We will make bad choices. Given to our own selfish decisions and ways, we will make bad choices. Hi, my name's Craig, and I will make bad choices. And you can say and put your name there. Don't put my name. Because that's just a truth. His failures are going to put him in touch with God's grace, and God's grace is where a leader's real strength comes from. And it's a church leader's most valuable resource to be able to help others in need. I told you several weeks ago we talked about this. I'm, 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 pretty, I'm pretty okay being with broken people. 
It's the people that don't see themselves as broken. They're the hard ones. I don't have a bandwidth from that because when you come from a perspective of brokenness, you're waiting to see some sense of humility and awareness. That could be trouble right there. That could be trouble. I'm saying we ought to pray right now for Larry Espinal. He could be tied up somewhere. You see, we can only pour God's grace into other people when we are filled with it ourselves. We can only pour God's grace into other people when we are filled with it ourselves. I mean, listen, mark this. It was not Peter's successes that made him a great leader. It was his failures. Because his failures were his gateway to grace, and the same is true of you and me. You think about this encounter with Jesus, okay? I mean, it didn't have to happen. They didn't have to record it. But all four Gospels tell us about Peter's failures. Now, Peter could have just said, okay, God, I'm just going to start serving you and I'm going to work my way back in. And Jesus could have said, well, good, because you're such a screw-up, you need to work your way back in. And he could have worked himself to the bone, constantly trying to achieve and achieve and achieve and achieve. What that's going to do is it's going to build a bitterness in him because he's never going to see himself gaining ground. He's going to feel like somebody is elevating the treadmill and making it speed up. And eventually he's going to become exhausted with trying to earn his way back in because isn't that the way it works? Have you ever tried to earn a promotion, earn a bonus, earn? And the bonus was never what you thought it was going to be. And even though you put all that work in for whatever that bonus was going to be, you're a little disappointed in it or maybe a lot disappointed in it. And then you say something like this, why bother? And if you try to earn your way back in with God, eventually you're going to go, why bother? This interaction with Jesus and Peter is so Peter will realize I need to resign from trying to earn what's already been given to me. And I'm going to dare say that there are people in here that are still trying to figure out a way to make God love them. And you keep coming back to, why bother? Nobody notices me. Nobody even knows I'm here. Nobody, nobody, nobody. He doesn't, he won't, he can't. And you may already be at the point of business. If not, you will be there soon. You see, Peter is either going to overcompensate for his own failure. He's going to overcompensate for his own failure. And he's going to go around going, hey, you need to stop that. You need to get your life right. And he's going to verbally berate people that have done the same thing he does. Because self-sufficiency will eventually lead to self-righteousness. Not only do you condemn yourself for what you've done, you will condemn anybody for anything they've done. It will become eventually, well, my sin's not as bad as your sin. And Jesus doesn't forgive big sin. He doesn't forgive little sin. He just forgives sin. Matter of fact, Jesus in Luke 15 was accused by the Pharisees of being at a table, having dinner with the worst of the worst. It doesn't name what those sins are. Have you ever noticed that? It doesn't say what those people had done. You know why? Because it doesn't matter. It only matters 
to legalists who want something to hold over someone else's head. Jesus doesn't forgive big sin or little sin. He doesn't forgive secret sin or open sin. He just forgives sin. And the day we resign as a class monitor so we can tell Jesus on other people will be a day when you break out and you are free to give other people grace that they desperately need. So he's either going to overcompensate or he's going to continue and he's going to do what God told him to do, but he's going to have the burden of his failure and his sin resting on him and it's going to erode his soul. Erosion is the steady, consistent removal of the solid things that can keep everything from slipping away. The solid things in our life are God's grace and God's love and God's mercy, God's hope, God's joy, God's peace, God's patience, God's kindness, God's gentleness, and the self-control that God instills within us by the Holy Spirit. The stable, steady, consistent things in our life are not anywhere related to self, unless it's self-denial. Because as long as it is self-sufficient, self-sustaining, the erosion will continue and the bitterness will only grow. Boy, that's a hard truth, isn't it? Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> Mark this. It was not Peter's successes that made him a great leader. It was his failures. What makes you a great leader has nothing to do with your successes. It has to do everything with how you turn over your failures to the one that can make it all beautiful again. But that means that you have to have some intimacy with God. You have to have dependence on Him and His grace because He is so sufficient. We're going to take communion. I love the fact that we get to take communion, not because we have to, but what a beautiful reminder that it's his body that was broken. It was his blood that poured out that put us back together. And so I just want to invite you to open your heart and say, God, where am I? Am I self-sufficient? Am I self-sustaining? Am I self-arrogant? Am I, am I, am I? And, and just let God speak to you. And whatever he tells you, then you respond to it. The prayer ministry will be over there ready to pray over you and pray with you. But let's just, let's just let God do what God does. Take communion this morning. We'll come back and close out with some worship and hope you have an amazing, amazing day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness, for your grace, for your mercy. Lord, may we not run, may we not run in our own self-sufficiency, but God, may we move by your spirit, held together by your goodness. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's break bread together this morning.